It's a glaring omission that I've not yet had any of New Zealand's investment leaders on the podcast. But today, I'm making up for lost time and I'm going straight to the top. Today, I'm speaking with Matt Winneray. He's the CEO of the New Zealand Superfund and the co-chair of the Sustainable Finance Forum. And that's what we're all about here on the Good Future Podcast. I'm your host, John Treadgold, and I'm asking the big questions about the business of sustainability, the new economy, and how your spending and investment decisions can have an impact. This was a great chat. We dug into what makes the New Zealand super and pension system unique, as well as how the organization integrates sustainability. But of course, it's a public fund. It's a government body. And I wanted to know how the increasingly politicized issues of climate change and pollution are managed by Matt and his team. Matt also talked about his move from the private sector in Hong Kong and New York and the challenges of shifting from the sell side to the buy side. Anyway, have a listen and let me know your thoughts. All the show notes are on my website at johntreadgold.com. Feel free to send through any comments or leave a review on iTunes. And I must thank Carly from the Responsible Investment Association of Australasia, aka RIA. She made the introductions for me, and the organization continues to be a great supporter of the show. RIA has over 300 members managing more than $9 trillion in assets globally. They're the largest network of people and organizations engaged in responsible, ethical, and impact investing across Australia and, of course, New Zealand. Head to responsibleinvestment.org to find out more. All right, on with the show. Let's get into my chat with Matt Winneray. Here we go. Matt Winneray, thank you for coming on the show. No trouble. It's been a crazy year. Coronavirus has, has changed everything. Um, how are you guys coping down there? You, you had it tough, but you've, you've done really well. Yeah, so we've had a couple of lockdowns. We went pretty fast earlier on and had, well, actually, we were 87 days out of the office in that first lockdown and then then came back and it all felt like, oh, we're all done, except for the border, of course. We had another little blip in August where we were out again for another couple of months. So we're back in the office now. Basically, town is pretty normal, except for the fact that we haven't got uh, any tourists here and and, um, we're short a few Aussies. Yeah, okay. And not not too many restrictions in cafes and that sort of thing? No, not at the moment. We had... We had a little blip last Friday where Auckland CBD was closed and so everybody who worked in the CBD was was asked to work from home while well, they tried to source the data of a little cluster uh, and they sort of figured that out over the weekend. So actually we're back to normal now. Uh, Monday we're back into it, so it's good. There we go. Well-oiled machine. Good to see. Now, look, you're the CEO of the New Zealand Super Fund. Really keen to dig into you know, the structure of how you guys manage pensions down there. You know, it's a government-run pension fund. I never quite realised how different the New Zealand system was to that in Australia. Can you give us a quick rundown of the system and some of the key differences? We've got two bits to our our retirement system over here. One is the universal pension. So that's what everybody gets when they turn 65. And everybody gets the same amount regardless of what they're earning through their working life. So that's the, that's the it's called national superannuation. That's just paid out of the, the current government books. So all the inflows for the year, taxes, etc., all the outflows, part of that is, is national superannuation. We, the New Zealand Super Fund, are a buffer fund to smooth out the increasing cost of that national superannuation over time. So like Australia, we've got an aging population. We're going to have fewer people who are working. The ratio of people working to people drawing a national superannuation 
is falling so that what we were set up for was to smooth out. So let's take a bit of money along the way and invest it and start paying it back to the government to smooth out that increase in cost. We've been operating for about 17 years, investing for about 17 years. The first withdrawals from our fund aren't due to happen until the mid-2030s, and that's a sort of a little dip, but the really sort of sustained withdrawals are the middle of this century. So at that point, we'll be a pretty reasonable size fund, hopefully, touch wood, and then the government will start withdrawing to help smooth out that cost. That's our part. The second part of the New Zealand system is voluntary superannuation. So that's private superannuation schemes. And we don't have a compulsory system. So the big difference between us and Australia is you have the compulsory superannuation set at a percentage of your wages paid into a some privately managed scheme. We don't have that. We have matching by employers, but they only match uh, whatever the employee chooses to set aside. And that's a thing that was called KiwiSaver. And so that was set up maybe about 10 years ago, I think, KiwiSaver, or maybe slightly longer ago than that. So that's our private retirement scheme. We're a much smaller private savings industry than you are in Australia. You've got some pretty massive pots of capital over there. You've been doing it for longer and putting more in. Over here, the percentages that get matched, I think, is 4%. Employees will pay 4% into their KiwiSaver account. Employers will match it. Uh, but even that employer piece still gets taxed by the government. So there's not a great deal of tax advantage in it. Uh, there are some small tax credits along the way, and uh, and that's sort of really about it. So we've got Albert, which we're here to partially pre-fund national super, and then we've got private super, and that's a small but growing industry. Yeah, it is interesting hearing it in that format because you, I guess I'd never digested you know, the, the subtle differences that we could have, because they are quite similar, but then it's, yeah, just some subtle elements of, of public and private. Yeah, they often think of the sort of the three pillars or three tiers of retirement savings are uh, universal public, compulsory private, and voluntary private. And so we have a partial pre-funding of that first one. We don't have any of the middle one, and we have a growing industry in the third one. So it's it's not a well-funded retirement system, if you, if you put it like that. It's changing on the private side. And your role building a fund for the future, you know, really, that really is the, the essence of long-term thinking. And I think that that, you know, dovetails so well with this concept of sustainable investing and integrating that. And so, yeah, I'd love to hear about how that side of things, you know, is sort of managed, um, what the mandate is, you know, how much of that is is uh, governed by, by the government. You're right. It is long-term thinking. So the people that set us up, that designed it, created this formula that tries to smooth out the cost over a rolling 40-year period. What that means at the moment is the outcome of that formula, as I said, is there will be some withdrawals starting in earnest in mid-2050s, like 2055 or something. But even at that point, the way it works, we should continue to grow in nominal terms and as a percentage of GDP through about 2080. So we are a very, a truly long horizon fund. That's a really important endowment, or what we describe as one of our investment endowments, our advantages as, a, as an investor is, is that really long-term horizon. The mandate in our statute says we must invest the fund commercially, we must maximise return without undue risk, we must use best practice portfolio management and we must also avoid prejudice to New Zealand's reputation as a member of the world, as a responsible member of the world community. So the combination of those three is, is what we have to do when we invest the fund. And we receive contributions along the way. So every 
every fortnight we get a contribution from the government and that gets added to the fund and we and we continue to invest. The contributions were stopped for a while by the previous government, so we didn't get any contributions for about nine years, but then the government changed and they turned them back on. But we receive those contributions and then we have to we have to invest them in accordance with that mandate. And so what that what that means for us is we stand there and go, okay, so how do we interpret that? Well, clearly the last limb of that, the avoid avoid prejudice to New Zealand's reputation, is really around acting responsibly as an investor. We also have a requirement to have an ethical investment policy, which is really kind of a subset we think of that. And so out of that, we produce our our responsible investment framework. But more importantly, before we get to that, we come up with these endowments. So we've got we've got a long horizon. We know what our liquidity profile is. So we know when we get money from the government, we know we need, need to pay it back. Uh, we have operational independence and we're part of the crown. So those are our sort of what we describe as our four endowments. And they're really important for how we then develop our investment strategy. And probably the most significant one from a sustainability perspective is because we're investing over such a long horizon, we care what the impact of these long-term trends is going to be on asset values over that long horizon. So we don't have this idea that, oh, well, I can invest now and I don't have to worry too much about some of these things that are going on because my horizon's only one year or it's two years or whatever it is. We're invested for the long term. So that means that we need to think hard about what are those things that are going to impact returns over the long term. So out of that comes uh, a set of investment beliefs. And one of our investment beliefs is that investors have to have regard to environmental, social and governance issues because they are material to long-term returns. They're they're material to investors' returns. That's the hook, if you like, to get into our responsible investment approach. It comes from our long horizon, from that piece of the mandate about avoiding prejudice and from our investment belief. Yeah, definitely. And it's obviously very prudent you know, to consider sustainability and ESG issues for the long term. But so often issues like fossil fuels and climate change have become increasingly politicized. Uh, and it seems that we do have some quite striking differences in, in, our, in our governments. When the New Zealand government announces a policy to, to reduce emissions or, or something like that, would, would that influence your portfolio decisions? Yeah, it does. Well, we'd already created a climate, what we call a climate change investment strategy we announced in 2016. And that had come out of quite a bit of work over the years leading up to that part of the carbon disclosure project. And we were involved with a group of investors who got Mercer to do some work for us on on the impact of climate change on investment returns over the long term. So we produced this climate change investment strategy and that said, hey, we think that this climate change risk that is in our portfolio, we're not getting paid for. It's a risk that exists that we're not really that we're not being compensated for properly. And so we don't think the market's doing a good job of pricing it. And before all the you know efficient market uh, proponents freak out, we do think that the efficient markets, uh, you know, that markets are efficient and generally pretty good at pricing this stuff. But we don't think they're that good at these really long-term trends, which have a lot of uncertainty about how they'll manifest, when they'll manifest, what pathway we're on, what the destination is. So, and in particular, climate change is one of those. So, so we think that they don't do a good job. So we should do something about that. Whether government activity and the things like the zero carbon legislation come in, uh, they are very consistent with, with that as a concept because what that says is we as a nation and the world generally needs to reduce emissions significantly if we're to keep temperatures down to a a livable level. What we're trying to do is reduce the risk 
of that in our portfolio. So those are quite consistent. It's quite helpful to have those going the same way. It makes it probably simpler to have conversations with your board and your stakeholders about those sort of things than if they go, they're not. You can imagine if you've got a board who is sensitive to political whims and those whims are going the other way, it's going to take a lot more work to be able to implement something like that climate change investment strategy that we did. We had a very supportive board. Uh, we had a lot of conversations. We would have had half a dozen conversations along the way before we got to that final strategy and the targets that we agreed. But it, it's critical to have the board on side and then it also helps that it's consistent with what, what the government's doing. And, and I find it so interesting, just the role, you know, your day-to-day -day job of managing money within a government organisation. And, and you've obviously got experience in the private sector. Um, you know, later on, I'm keen to talk about your time in, in Hong Kong and New York. Are there any striking differences? You know, obviously, it's still, it's still a competitive role. You still, you know, have commercial pressures. But is there anything interesting that, that you know, uh, holds them apart? We have a purpose, which is clearly the benefit New Zealanders over the long term. And so that's a really useful thing in terms of recruiting and retaining people. That purpose and that connection to the purpose is really, is, is really important to our staff and to me. So I think that helps. The other things, you'll get, you get other things that come with being a government entity. You get more scrutiny, you get more transparency, you know, you turn up at the select committee, you've got to get in front of parliament, you you know, you've got all of the stuff, you've got the official information act. So, so there's a lot, there's an overlay that comes with managing money on behalf of the public, which is all about making sure that it's been done, you know, properly and prudently and with appropriate risk management and all that sort of stuff. So there's certainly more, but I think the biggest bit is probably that our purpose is about reducing the burden on future New Zealanders. So that's really helpful when you're, when you're able to connect with something like that. And that, rolls on to another role you've got, which is with the Sustainable Finance Forum. And they have some really interesting goals. And I think, you know, to me, as I read through sort of their core pillars, there's so many different ways we can go to progress this sustainability initiative. And number one for them was changing mindsets. And that really stuck out to me. You know, I think that the science has been pushing at this stuff for as long as I can remember, for decades, right? And we have definitely haven't made as much progress as we need to. And to me, it's this mindset shift. So maybe you could give us a quick overview of the Sustainable Finance Forum and then, yeah, how you think about changing mindsets. So the Sustainable Finance Forum is, is set up under the, a thing called the Aotearoa Circle, which is a group of public and private entities that are looking to preserve New Zealand's natural capital. The Sustainable Finance Forum was set up under that, and this is essentially people from the financial sector, so banks, insurers, fund managers, asset owners like us, uh, people from the philanthropic sector, iwi Māori and others, who are all actors in the financial system. We set it up to say, what is it that we need to do to, to transform our financial system to a sustainable one? And what does that mean? It means that the decision makers in the system are taking account of the, both the impact on their business of these long-term trends and the impact of their business on those long-term societal trends. It should be a financial system that serves the needs of the, of the people that, that generates environmental, social and economic prosperity. So what it focused on in the very first, the interim report, was what's getting in the way. What's getting in the way, short-termism, measures that are, that are narrowly financial ones and, and we're not properly taking into account these you know, externalities, if you like, carbon being the, 
the mother of all externalities, you know, carbon emissions. So we came up with the interim report, which looked at what are the barriers and then said, what are the possible pathways to deal with some of these things? And then we had a long discussion with various actors in the system and we came up with the roadmap and the roadmap came up with, here's a bunch of steps that we can take to over the next 10 years to transform our system into a more sustainable one. And you're right, we categorise them into three categories. There's, there's 11 recommendations in, in all, but the three categories are changing mindsets, transforming the financial system and financing the transformation. So that's sort of directing capital. The middle one is about how you change the settings for the existing capital. And the first one is about what's the reason? Why will people make decisions in a different way? And the point of that is that, the system itself is not a, it's not an engineering problem. It's not a whole lot of pipes that direct capital places. It's the aggregate of all of the decisions of all of those people in the system. The other day I was in a seminar and someone said, you know, nothing changes until mindset changes. And that's exactly why we, we use that phrase changing mindsets, because until you start saying, all right, I need to incorporate these things. Why do I need to incorporate them? Well, maybe because it's part of my fiduciary duty if I'm a director or if I'm a fund manager to actually consider in particular climate change, for example, or it's part of the governance KPIs of the organization. So the leaders of the organization have said, we think this is important, or frankly, the price of that, of that use of natural capital is actually properly being priced. So now I need to take it into account in my business decisions. Once you've got that reason, then you're just talking about, well, how do I do it? And I described it at the launch as it's a little bit like the old murder who done it you know so the old thing was you know you had to have means motive and opportunity so you'd sort of go around the courtroom and look for someone who who looked kind of you know looked like they had the means but would you know dodgy and they uh, they obviously had the motive in the world of sustainable finance means is things like data information frameworks all of that stuff that provides what you need to actually make the decision but the motive the motive is the most critical bit, and that's the changing mindset. So why are people going to incorporate these long-term trends in their decisions? Why are they going to think about the impacts of their decisions on those long-term trends? Well, it's because of those fiduciary duties or government's responsibilities or KPIs or value pricing, frankly. you got to get that motive change because, as I say, nothing changes until mindset changes. Yeah, now look, that's a great line. Uh, you know, right at the beginning there, explaining the organisation, you talked about how the remit is, is you know, saving the natural assets of the country and and the outside of you you know might be stereotypical is that the culture of new zealand you know has this rich bond to the land and its history uh, do you think that's reflected in the way companies and, and investors engage with sustainable investment i don't know i think every culture can probably you know make their own case for having a particular bond to their land and and probably could if we went around the world we could find others who, who do that but yeah we we do we definitely have a have a strong bond with our land and with the health and well-being of, of our natural capital. So natural capital includes things like air, fresh water, the, the, the seas around us, biodiversity, soil, all of that is really critical. I think that helps, but I don't know that we're necessarily further ahead than other countries in terms of some of these things. We probably like other countries. You've got some companies that are really progressive and some that are laggards. So what we're trying to do with this whole sustainable finance activity is to try and shift everybody along, improve the information that all of the financial system participants have, and then give them a reason to use that uh, in their decision making. Yeah, and you mentioned well-being there. And I think, simple word, but it does mean more and more these days. And I'm really grabbing onto that as being a really interesting metric, measuring well-being. Obviously, New Zealand's leading with the well-being budget. 
I'd be interested to know your experience with that. Do you think that it can have the really tangible, you know, financial metric kind of input and impacts? That's the hope. Actually, I think New South Wales was one of the first places to do a wellbeing budget. Uh, and then we pinched your um, one of your senior treasury people and Carolee McLeish is now our Secretary of Treasury, So, which is great. So we've got all that experience from that. But yeah, look, I think the wellbeing budget and the living standards framework that comes with it is, is something that the government in particular is in process of sort of translating into a way of helping with decisions. So you've got to you've got to decide what metrics are important, and then you've got to be able to map things to those metrics, and then you've got to then go back and say, okay, so if we allocate to this thing, what does that do to our well-being measures? And you know, in those sort of models, there's going to be some fuzziness, is my guess, between some of those linkages and how much those affect it. But it's a it's an attempt to more properly describe these things which we haven't been able to do before, just by saying what's the impact on GDP or what's the impact on employment or we've got a lot more indicators and, and that's actually one of Treasury's jobs is to turn that into a, a living standards dashboard that we can then start to use to monitor how we as a country are, are performing against these these targets. Well, that's it. And it all comes down to this, uh, this point of data and, and using them as metrics. And we've got centuries of experience with accounting standards. But, but as you said, it's, it's these fuzzy issues and trying to fit them in. How do you see, I mean, even from a personal perspective, you know, being close to this industry, maybe it's a question of what direction do you think could, could best integrate these previously, they call them non-financial factors, but they become financial very quickly. Yeah, how best do you think we can integrate those and, and I guess increase the, the spectrum and the uh, the sophistication of the way we, we value investments. Yeah, and I love your point about they become financial very quickly because often you hear, oh, those are non-financial, and it just really bugs me, that phrase, because it's all financial in the end. You know, this idea that if somebody is dumping their mining tailings in the river, and you call we call that a non-extra financial or non-financial, that is going to be financial at some point. It might disrupt their whole business. If someone is using a local military to protect their operations and that's, they shoot local people, then you know that's going to have a financial impact, even though people might say, oh, well, that's obviously non-financial. You know, so the, I, it's one of my pet bugbears is people using that non-financial phrase. So I, like, I love that you said they become financial very quickly. How do you do it? You start by reporting it. So that's where we're going now with the, with the TCFD. New Zealand has announced that from 2022, once the legislation gets passed, uh, New Zealand companies will be subject to the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosure uh, regime, and there's a bit of work to do from from our reporting board here to, to determine how exactly how that will work and implement it. But that's that's how it starts because for us as an investor to make decisions about our portfolio and about the climate risk in our portfolio, we need to know, you know, what are the emissions from a particular company, what are the reserves holdings from a particular company. We and we need to have that for the all of the companies in our portfolio. And then we can start saying, okay, now we have a picture of what our climate-related risk is, we can do something with it. When I've had this conversation about climate change with people and what we've done in our portfolio, you go, oh, yeah, but isn't the data a bit ropey? And, you know, how do you get your head around sort of scope one and scope two emissions and stuff? And I go, Look, yeah, that's true. The data is still coming and, and assurance is still developing. You know, that's one of the harder things. So... You might get some data, might not be comparable to the next company, it might not be comparable to last year. So over time that will improve 
And over time, it will also be assured. So you get proper auditing of it, which would be great. But you've already got some, and it's enough for us, we say, to be able to start making decisions. All of these investors out there uh, basing their, their portfolio construction decisions on a view of the equity risk premium. And frankly, that's still a pretty loose concept for us. What is it today? I don't know. We, there's some, you know, If you go and poll people, you get a big range of what the equity risk premium is from over time and what the source of it is. But notwithstanding that uncertainty, people still use it as, as a key determinant of portfolio construction. And we would say, well, you can do the same thing with the climate data you've got. And over time, that will improve. So the first point is start reporting it. And the second point is create some framework to be able to use it. You know, you've got to be able to do something with it. And if it's climate issues, you know, that's more on the environmental side. And I think there is a lot of progress has been made. But if we look at the social side and might capture that well-being element, you know, I think your example of a, you know, polluting a, a river with, with tailings, that cost is, is sort of maybe longer term, it'll go back to the company. But in the shorter term, that cost is going to be borne by the public. And I'd assume that there'd be elements of, you know, the well-being measurement that is measuring that. How do you see that sort of progressing academically um, as, sort of as a field and, and, and adoption um, within finance? It's totally true that the social bit, the S in ESG is the sort of the, is the harder one, right? So governance is sort of easier to measure and it's got numbers and you can do ratios and whatever. Environmental is narrower and also often uh, measurable. So climate, which sits under there, is is a more tractable question. Yes, it, there's a lot of different views on what the appropriate priorities for social outcomes are and how you would rank them. And that's even shown in the SDGs, right? So the Sustainable Development Goals, there's 17 of them, and they are harder to get your arms around in terms of thinking about y- your portfolio. I think part of what the Living Standards Framework is trying to do is to try and connect those things so to create metrics of outcomes from the inputs that they've got but yeah that i totally agree that the social side is a is a more challenging place and that's something that we found more challenging in the in the sustainable finance forum and you see this around the world there's quite a few initiatives sustainable finance initiatives going on in fact there's one in australia the australian sustainable finance initiative which's releasing its report next week but these other ones that you've seen internationally they've often gravitated towards the the green because it's perhaps easier to get agreement on climate as the big issue or and in particular climate so uk green finance strategy the the european union version focused on climate in particular but in the social side it's harder what's been interesting about doing our consultation in the middle of the pandemic is that actually the s has become a lot more important and people are more interested in uh in discussions of you know about even basic stuff like what what is the if you think about resilience of companies, what's the sick leave policy that a company has? You go to many states in the US, there is no paid sick leave. So what does that do? It means that people want to go to work because they can't get paid otherwise. What does that do? It spreads the virus. So what does that do? Resilience is bad. So even those basic level input is quite a useful insight into how companies are able to deal with these risks manifesting over time. But yeah, definitely S is a challenge because it's broader in its ambit and harder to get direct causation between cost and, and impact. Well, that's it. And, and it's so much more personal, I often find. Like when I sort of explain it to people, they say, oh, well, 
you know, that's just being human. That's never going to be factored into finance. And then it's like, well, what if we could? I mean, that example I gave you about using the military, that's a social one. That's how do you treat, how do you treat your, the community that you're in? Or, you know, how do you treat your employees as a social factor in ESG? So those types, we, we are trying to deal with those, but turning them into numbers is, is challenging. Yeah, definitely. Well, look, you know, you haven't always worked in New Zealand. I, I did do some reading and, and you've worked in New York and Hong Kong. Can you tell us a little bit about that, about, um, I mean, one or the other that was sort of more pivotal and, and some of your experiences working offshore and then coming back to New Zealand? Yeah, so uh, New York, I worked in uh, the leverage finance team. So we were working with buyout funds, um, mostly doing financing bond issues or bank lending or M&A transactions. Same actually up in Hong Kong, I was working in, a, in what was called the Financial Sponsors Group, which was again covering those PE. They were all um, sell side. I came back to the, to the Guardians because uh, it was an opportunity to switch onto the buy side. And the attraction of that was that I could, uh, you'd live with your decisions for a bit longer. So on the, you know, in investment banking world, you do a transaction, you finish it, you move on, and you're on the next transaction. And there, you don't have great continuity within, with particular entities. Hmm. Who are you working with in New York, sorry? Uh, I was working with Credit Suisse up there as well. So Credit Suisse in Hong Kong, Credit Suisse, it was called CSZB when I was first up in New York. It's very transactional. It's very short-term focused. I was interested in being able to extend the horizon a bit and, and you know live with the consequences of your decisions for a bit longer. That was the attraction of coming home. One of the interesting issues I faced when I first got back was I'd been covering the, the private equity funds as an investment banker. And frankly, when you're an investment banker, you're not stopping to think, is this private equity fund adding value to its investors? You, you're not thinking about the upstream investors. Then I got to the fund and we were investors in some, of, in some of these private equity funds. And I had to turn around and go, are you guys actually adding any value to us as an investor? Or, or mostly are you capturing the value yourself on the basis of the capital that we're providing? So, you know, and then you've put an intermediary in the way of the decision that you're making. So there was a quite a interesting mindset change for me to go from that sell side role to the buy side role and start thinking about how do we think about making these decisions uh, and how do we make them ourselves as opposed to outsourcing those. And so we have moved quite a bit of our investment decision making in house uh, in, the, in the 12 years that I've been here. Yeah, okay. And so it sounds like it was a, a conscious decision to, to make that sort of shift. But obviously, when you actually did make it, the the action on the ground was different. Yeah, I mean, can you talk a bit more about that? Uh, it's quite interesting of uh, sort of the relationship itself changing quite a lot when you start to uh, ask different questions. Yeah, so I got back here in May 2008, and it was all uh, just starting to turn to custard. You know, the pre end of the previous year was that time we, which was, you know, now nostalgically known as the credit crunch, and everyone thought, it, oh, everyone who was very US-centric would say, Oh no, it'll be fine by Thanksgiving. Oh no, it'll be fine by you know Christmas. Uh, actually, no, it's not going to be fine. And now we've gone from the credit crunch into a full-on financial crisis. So Bear Stearns was earlier in the year, and then I got back here, and then Lehman's happened uh, later in the in the 2008. And that was a really f rapid introduction to me to institutional investment. It was like, oh, this is a big portfolio. We've got lots of assets from around the world, and trying to get your arms around that and make some decisions on the fly when, when our, actually our information wasn't that great. So one of the things that we did coming out of, the, out of the financial crisis was create some capability internally to actually do some market trading and also create the systems internally so that we would understand where all our liquidity was because the biggest risk you have as, a, as an investor is running out of money as an asset owner. So 
So we had to make sure where's our liquidity, what are our liquidity requirements. So that was a, a fair bit of work that happened right after the, the start of the GFC. And then also, you know, a, a lot of looking at managers and saying, you know, are we getting value for what we're giving you and are you doing what we want? And, you know, there were enough that weren't that we, you know, moved away from them and changed the way in which we invested the portfolio. And, and yeah, been here 12 years now, it's been good. Well, look, my last question, it's a pretty easy one, but, but one everybody loves, and that is a uh, book recommendation. Love to know what's on the side table or something that's, you know, helped you in your career. Well, what's on the side table at the moment, I'm reading um, Paul Kelly's biography, which uh, I heard a review of on the radio a little while ago and went and, and, went and bought. So I'm working my way through that because he's uh, the music of my university days and uh, still, still listen to plenty of them. So um, that's the one I'm reading at the moment. Biographies are always a tough one. Um, you can love the person and, and hate the book, but uh... yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. It's a it's a it's a funny one because sometimes you know you have this impression of a person, and then you get a whole lot more information on them, and maybe you don't like the person <laughs> quite so much anymore. But, <laughs> but uh, no, it's been good. It's 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 good. I'm still going. Very good, very good. All right, well, Matt, really appreciate all of this today. Um, lots to digest there, and and for people not to make assumptions about New Zealand and the the financial system. So I hope people dig a little bit deeper and and learn more about what you're up to. Thank you. Cheers.